I think when we're we're looking at this false choice between letting pregnant people use drugs and not letting pregnant people use drugs, and that's not what the choice is. The choice is helping pregnant people who use drugs or not helping pregnant people who use drugs. It's the one topic where like people feel like they're justified in not changing their attitudes. People don't love being told that what they're doing is wrong and hurtful and harmful. And then when you tell them it's not even evidence-based, it, that's a hard sell. It's, it's hard to get people on your side when you tell them that. It's our systems that are encouraging certain behaviors, such as needle littering. It's mitigating the harm caused by the drug war. That's what's really harmful. It's not the substances themselves. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. It'd be unrealistic to portray stigma against drug users as totally absent, but in 2021, a lot of progress has been made against the gooey narcotics propaganda we are fed from birth. It's often hard to unstick from our minds the idea, for example, that cannabis users are inherently lazy or that taking meth makes you a violent psychopath. Slowly, as a collective society, we are accepting that drug use is normal human behavior and that prohibition is what really creates the conditions for harms, not the chemical itself. However, one area where stigma especially persists, even among, quote, harm reduction advocates, is the prejudice against mothers and pregnant people who use drugs. Even some people in syringe exchange or who work in drug policy are totally against the idea of people with the capacity for pregnancy, i.e. anyone with a uterus, using pretty much any drugs for any purpose. It's not clear why the principles of harm reduction that we extend to almost everyone else suddenly stops when it involves a fetus or a uterus. But the lives of pregnant people are no less important than anyone else who uses drugs, and the same attitudes of stigma, abstinence only, and surveillance don't work here either. They just make the situation worse. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. We have a great episode for you today, all about pregnancy and drug use, with three of my all-time favorite people. We've sort of touched on this topic before on episode 48, Moms and Methadone, episode 24, How to Get Abortion Pills, and episode 6, Myth Evolution from Crack Kids to Addicted Babies, but this episode has a little more laser focus on pregnancy specifically. But first, I have to quickly remind you that for now, Narcotica is ad-free. We use Patreon at patreon.com slash narcotica. It's the best way for folks who appreciate this program to support us, and even a little bit goes a long way. Helping us pay our bills for hosting and editing, etc. helps us reach a broader audience with our message, which is drug use does not make you a bad person, and we should end the war on people that is dressed up as a war on drugs. So that's it. If you like the show, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash narcotica, and if you ask us, we'll send you some stickers. We're trying to make some more merch. Tell all your friends about us. Most podcasts spread through word of mouth, so tell everyone about Narcotica, a podcast all about the science of getting high. We have not one, but three guests today. All of them are the co-founders of the Academy of Perinatal Harm Reduction, a benefit LLC that focuses on people with the capacity for pregnancy who also happen to use drugs. People can learn more at perinatalharmreduction.org. But for now, let me introduce Rhea Sinas, based in Portland, Oregon, who works at Outside In as a syringe exchange specialist and community health worker. She's also the mother of a wonderful kid. Hey, this is Rhea. And I'm super excited to be here. So thanks, Troy. 
Erica Goyer, based in Austin, Texas, is an advocate at the National Perinatal Association and the co-founder of Academy of Perinatal Harm Reduction. She's also a parent. Hey, Troy. Thanks for having us. This is Erica. And Joelle Puccio, a travel nurse who is sometimes based in Seattle, Washington, and works as a board of directors at the People's Harm Reduction Alliance. Hi, I'm Joelle. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on. I've been uh, impressed with the work you've done for a while. I've been following it at least since 2017. Let's start with how long you three have been working on this issue of perinatal substance use or drug use during pregnancy. You formed this nonprofit, APHR, around 2016. How have things changed since then? Uh, let's start with you, Joelle. Sure. So um, we we formed the Benefit LLC actually in 2019, but we've been working together for much longer than that. I've known Rhea for 10 or 11 years. We met doing direct service syringe access in Seattle. And then in 2015, I spoke at a conference where I met Eric Goyer. And out of that, everything else has bloomed. I mean, how have things changed since then? Just really dramatically. I mean, the the national landscape has become so different. There's been increased focus in on harassing pregnant and parenting people who use drugs in certain areas. And then in other areas, it's lifted. For example, um, cannabis restrictions have been lifted all over the place. And that tends to affect pregnant and parenting people, not always in the ways that you would think. So a ton has changed since then. There's also been a lot more um, folks working in this sphere. I think in the beginning, it was partly that we just didn't know who else was doing the work. But as we've progressed, we've met other people that are doing the work and a lot more organizations have started doing this work. So it's a really, really exciting time to be working in perinatal harm reduction. This is Erica. You know, again, um, you know, Joel and Rhea have known each other for a while and been working in direct services. But like jo- Joel alluded to, you know, I first met her out in Tennessee. It was the National Advocates for Pregnant Women was partnering with the National Perinatal Association that I was working with to do this conference on, again, criminalization of drug use during pregnancy and the way things were going down in Tennessee at the time with the legislation they had. But, you know, so there have been people doing this work for a long time and there have been pregnant and parenting people using substances for a long time. But um, again, the the way that people, what people think about it and then how they react and how they try to control it implement systems to catch people that's what is where it starts to get really insidious when i'm thinking about like how things have changed i definitely feel like there's been much more attention brought to the issue especially since you know the big leaders within our movement have shifted from being white cis men to women of color there's definitely more of a focus on reproductive justice and just having conversations around pregnancy and parenting and substance use. But I don't really see anything beyond a conversation happening. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's, it's really exciting time, especially here in Oregon, we just passed the decrim law here, but, you know, again, nowhere in that legislation does it speak to anything around pregnancy or parenting. And so even though, you know, it's a victory in terms of drug policy and a move in the right direction, it still leaves, you know, an entire population of people behind. And so 
And even within the drug using community, there's so much education and unpacking of, you know, bias uh, within the community that needs to happen. And so it's really exciting, you know, to not just be the only voice in the room for the first time, but also like there just needs to be, in my mind, you know, this is an issue that harm reduction has done a terrible job at highlighting and Really, I mean, reproductive health is harm reduction. And so I, I really would like to see this becoming uh, an issue that's implemented in, in harm reduction programming as just a normal thing, just like passing out condoms. Yeah, this uh, I, I think I agree with you that, that I see a lot of conversations being had, but not a lot of action. And I think that might have to do with the fact that this is sort of an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. It doesn't have to be. But it is for a lot of people. And that's sort of the reason I want to bring attention to this issue and have all three of you on. This work really matters. It intersects with so many other social justice issues. And like you said, even in the realm of harm reduction, perinatal substance use is something that is super taboo, that even super, quote, woke people think is totally crossing a line, like letting someone who's pregnant use drugs. I guess, can we talk a little bit about some of your personal experience advocating for this issue, you know, kind of maybe butting heads with some people that don't really grasp this concept or, you know, don't, we'll talk about it, but not actually act on it. I'll start. I, you know, what's really interesting is that, you know, all of us bring different things to the table. And for me, um, I am a person with lived experience and I'm also a professional. So I, I kind of have my toe dipped in two different waters and, you know, it's it's very gratifying to stand in front of a room full of neonatologists and sort of give them the spiel and like explain to them how they are wrong, but also be able to provide evidence to back up that those those truths. There's a lot of pushback. I mean, I can't tell you just sitting in meetings and, and, and having conversations with people that don't know that, you know, my history and my story it's frustrating, just like you said, because people do consider themselves to be entirely woke, but yet they they are walking around with so much so much bias and almost like it's okay for them to hold on to it. Like it's the one topic where like people feel like they're justified and not changing their attitudes um, towards towards pregnant and parenting people who use drugs. And they and they stand by the idea that they're doing they're doing good, like their intention is good enough and don't recognize or unwilling to see the harms that that they're causing, even just by not including people with lived experience in the conversation, like something just as simple as that. Um, so I, I find it. Um, gratifying and also maddening at the same time <laughs> but I, people are trying so you know that's 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 a good thing if you ever want to find out about what it's like to have your body controlled you know start making another person inside of it or trying to make another person inside of it because again a lot of the things that end up affecting us are not necessarily criminal statutes or laws or things like that they're all the behaviors that providers are engaged in or they're all the uh, statutes or policies that are written. And again, like Rhea alluded to, and I'm sure Joelle will expand on, a lot of them think they're doing good. A lot of them think they're paying attention to the evidence and treating people well. But we still fundamentally believe 
you know, we always hear like, well, if you loved yourself, you wouldn't do this. And then we hear, if you loved your baby, if you really cared about your kids, you would stop doing this. And it never addresses those larger issues. I know we're going to get to about why people use substances in the first place. It's because there are benefits to doing it. But it also just, you know, again, the idea that when you enter into reproduction and pregnancy and parenting, you aren't an individual anymore. And uh, it can be really scary. It can make you feel incredibly vulnerable. And people are still very comfortable doing things to you when you're when you're pregnant and parenting. And I want to clarify, I think Erica meant you're not treated as an individual anymore. When you become pregnant, you definitely are still an individual. Yeah. You know, you you really are too. They forget too that even in medicine, you are the patient. The fetus, the baby inside of you is not a patient until they're born. But so many things are done in the sake of what would be good for that thing inside you, that kiddo inside you. And then if I can just throw in a little bit more here too, I think that that people who don't, it, it's really hard sometimes to wrap my head around how people's brains work who aren't thinking about perinatal harm reduction 24 hours a day. But I think, I think back to before I was in this work, I held a lot of the same ideas and misconceptions that we're fighting against now. And, it, and we're not out here to say you're bad, but we are out here to say you're wrong. And it's not, I think that people have a conception of perinatal harm reduction as like allowing people to use drugs. Um, but the general, you don't have any say in whether a person uses drugs, whether they're pregnant or not. I mean, we all, we all know that criminalization isn't exactly the greatest deterrent for drug use. And that's the only tool that is always leveled against us. So I think when we're we're looking at this false choice between letting pregnant people use drugs and not letting pregnant people use drugs, and that's not what the choice is. The choice is helping pregnant people who use drugs or not helping pregnant people who use drugs. And and that's the real choice that we're looking at here. Not I mean the the concept of like whether it's okay with some individual somewhere that another individual person uses, like that's irrelevant. I mean, maybe not to that person on a personal level, but as far as what happens in the world, that doesn't matter. The choice is whether we're going to help people or not. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, I guess I want to ask some kind of dumb fundamental questions just to kind of get your response to it. But, you know, I think it might be illuminating for some of our listeners, like, you know, why would a person who is pregnant use drugs in the first place? And, you know, I think that one of the first myths I wanted to dispel is that drug use during pregnancy is abnormal. You know, historically, there's been lots of lots of different reasons for people to use drugs because pregnancy is this whole process. You know, I really have no idea what it's like personally. Even thousands of years ago, people were taking herbs or something like that to help with the pregnancy, caffeine, ibuprofen. These are even that those kinds of things are controversial for some people. But I think it's even weirder to think of not using drugs during pregnancy. That's that's the strange behavior and not the opposite. But what are some of the reasons, I guess, that people would use drugs while pregnant? Well, we could talk about this all day. It's incredibly, you know, complex. But I'd start by saying, you know, people, pregnant people use drugs and parent people use drugs for the same reasons everybody else does. Sometimes there's a really good psychotherapeutic effect with different substances you use. Sometimes those substances are over the counter or even prescribed to you 
to use and you, you need to use them in order to maintain your health, uh, mental health and, and phys- physical health too. You know, people also use them because to, you know, be more productive, to uh, relax, to experience joy, you know, all those things we talk about that, you know, all of us, why people would engage in any sort of substance use or use of psychoactive substances. And again, so we all know that so many of the substances that we use in one setting, they're considered appropriate and medications and in another setting, they're not. Um, but I would also say quite honestly that most pregnant people don't use substances. They quit using it, you know, uh, it's not just that people get worried about whether or not to eat sushi or sit in the hot tub. People also think about, you know, where are the medications, where are the recreational things that I'm using. And we know that most people, if they're intentionally trying to get pregnant, change their patterns of use. We know that, I mean, we have really good data that talks about how during the first trimester, what patterns are like. And then when people find out that they're pregnant, how far it goes down during the second. And finally, by the third trimester, rates of use are really, really low. And so we have to argue that maybe those people um, may benefit if they want it from some clinical intervention to help them change their patterns of use. But, you know, we also have to acknowledge that the um, our reproductive life course and when we're most likely use substances in our lives are the same times. And so, of course, these things are going to intersect. And I, I don't know if we'll have a chance to talk about it, but certainly all the things we talk about, you can do some very interesting contrasts between the substances that we think are a problem and alcohol use. And alcohol use is, again, the most common substance used during pregnancy and parenting. It actually is one of the riskier ones to use if you start looking at, like, teratogenically or as far as the health effects to the, the parent or the pregnant person. But it's also one that we don't test for, which is a limitation of some of the testing, and that we don't take people's children away. We don't spell for alcohol is an exception when I talked about how people use fewer drugs over the course of their pregnancy. Um, most people don't change their patterns of use with alcohol, especially during the first trimester. And yet we continue to receive guidance from different organizations saying there is no safe level to use of alcohol for a number of reasons that get complicated and interesting, but we end up then with things that are guidance like that parallel what we say about the drug war, which is there is never a safe amount of alcohol to use. And again, what do people do with that information? So if we're saying that, if we're saying that about all these other substances, there's never a safe amount to use. It's never appropriate. How do you, how do you start having a, a collaborative, you know, discussion, if that's the starting point. You know, Erica mentioned, you know, people take drugs to be more productive. I think, you know, for people who may have had a relationship with substances and then decide to become pregnant, it's still a relationship, right? Like if you use substances your whole entire life and then you become pregnant, even if you're choosing that pregnancy, you're still having to break up with a very dear and close friend, as it were, <laughs> or, you know, a tool um, that's, that's helped get you through certain times or things. Um, and so there isn't a whole lot of support for people around, like, because there's still fear, like, even though 
you know, you may have decided to become pregnant and you were using substances and you became pregnant and you stopped, you're still afraid to, to even say that you were a substance user, even if your intention is to stop using during your pregnancy. And, you know, I don't know anyone that's pregnant that's decided, okay, I think I'm going to pick up a heroin habit now because that sounds like a great idea now that I'm pregnant. Um, that doesn't happen. But what does happen is people relapse, you know, um, and people people fuck up and like, and I think that happens a lot more frequently than we would, we would probably even know. And one of the things Erica touched on is like productivity. And I think another big thing is like, we, ha we can't have this conversation without discussing like the really, the true structural problems. I think that all of like, that are at the root of why people become dependent upon substances. And I think for, you know, women, people with the ability to, to have, to, you know, have, have babies with uteruses, you know, the, the amount of pressure there is to, you know, to work a full-time job and parent and do all of these things, um, you know, with very little sleep and very little social supports, you know, it sort of forces people to look to substances to sort of help them get through the day. I mean, like mother's little helper, that's not a joke. That's like a real thing, you know? And so I don't think people use substances when they're pregnant because they want to. I think it's out of necessity. Um, and when you start parenting, you know, all of the supports that you may have had while you were pregnant start to fall away because nobody really cares about you as a person. They care about the baby more um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's very, where do you turn to, to ask for help when you know that, um, most of the systems that we have in place are intended to, to harm. It's really hard to, um, to reach out and ask for help. And it'd be really nice, right. If we, if we had, if we could get really good data on the why, um, if, if we were able to like tear down some of the structural inequities, you know, like if we could like, you know, tear down the patriarchy and capitalism, you know, and racism and anti-blackness and white supremacy, then maybe we could have it all figured out. But, um, you know, that, that's not, that's, that's not happening or oh, it's happening, but it hasn't happened yet. So, um, yeah, that's my two cents. So kind of another obvious question. Uh, I, I bet some people listening to this are thinking like, how can you even discuss this? isn't drug use during pregnancy so dangerous? And, you know, of course, I want to be clear that none of us here are advocating that anybody who's pregnant or anybody who's anybody go out and take any drugs. Like, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not encouraging anything. But I also think there's a heightened level of stigma against pregnant people who use drugs. And so I kind of wanted to dispel some of these myths. Um, you know, first of all, the stigma itself can be harmful. You know, somebody who uses drugs gets pregnant they suddenly don't want to go to a doctor because they use drugs. And like, there's this whole barrier that, that they under, they understand that they're going to be encountering a completely different healthcare system than if they were just a person using drugs and even services outside of the healthcare system, like harm reduction, like, you know, maybe you'd be turned away from a syringe access program for being pregnant. And so then you're going to be more likely to use a, reuse a syringe or share a needle or something like that. But I guess let's get to this fundamental question. How dangerous is drug use during pregnancy? I love this question. And I've been known to start many a conversation in bars with people asking me what I do with 
with the the phrase, you know, drugs aren't that bad for fetuses and babies. And that always that's always a really good attention grabber. Um, like you said, we do not advocate that anybody use drugs, including or during pregnancy, including caffeine and cannabis um, and, and some of these other things that that are kind of more socially acceptable. But when we when we look at the actual data about substance use in pregnancy, there is very little data that suggests that there are any long term severe effects from any substances other than um, alcohol and to to some extent tobacco uh, smoking. Most of the research is in the form of cigarettes. So it's probably not linked to the nicotine itself, but to just the act of inhaling products of combustion or smoke. But when we think about uh, the the really stigmatized ones, which are, you know, opioids such as heroin, stimulants such as cocaine and methamphetamine, and to a lesser extent cannabis, there really is just very little data of of any serious harm. Um, What we see for stimulants such as cocaine and methamphetamine is some very minor decreases in birth weight and um, gestational length, which means like how long you are pregnant. So you're looking at preterm deliveries. And when what we see in those studies, when we control for other factors, such as exposure to racism, exposure to violence, um, nutrition, poverty, education, when, when we add in all these other factors that we know have an effect on pregnancy outcomes and infant and child development, we, it's, it's so minor. It's a couple hundred grams difference in birth weight. So that translates to a few ounces. So you're looking and we're and usually the birth weights are still within normal range. So we're looking at the difference between a baby who is seven pounds, 15 and a baby who's eight pounds, four. Like it's it's not really it's not really super relevant. It would be if it was, you know, the difference between being, you know, five pounds, 14 and six pounds, four. But all of our babies are still within the normal range of, of human variation. And that's what we see with most of the studies. Now, what happens and the reason why, you know, I used to think this and probably a lot of your listeners think uh, that substance use in pregnancy is just like terrible is because, oh, it's, it's, it starts so early. It's because the funders of research about substance use in pregnancy in this country are not looking for just clear and unbiased data. They're looking for data that supports a certain narrative. And so those kinds of studies are the ones that get funded. And, you know, maybe you do your study and you find kind of equivocal data and you write your, you know, discussion at the end of your scientific paper about your data. And it gets sent back time and time again from journal after journal because they don't agree with your discussion. So what we end up with is scientific papers that present all of their data and then interpret it in such a way that is just not scientific. So they'll take these very minor differences of like, say, a few ounces in birth weights, and their conclusion will be, so we conclude that babies exposed to this substance in pregnancy are in danger of being seriously underweight, but that's not what their data said. And so that's the beginning. Then when we get this in, this scientific information translated for a more general public audience, Um, So by the regular media, except for you, Troy, you always do a good job. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I I try. (laughs) Yes. But all those other journalists 
should be ashamed of themselves because they take this already exaggerated description of the harms and then exaggerate it further. And so that's when we get situations like in the 1980s with the crack baby epidemic that never was. And then we just keep cycling through there. I mean, you know, a few years ago, it was it was methamphetamine. Now we're back to opioids. In a few years, it'll probably be cocaine again in some capacity, or maybe it'll be, you know, a, a, one of these new drugs, the designer drugs that people are creating in response to prohibition. But it's always the same narrative, and it's never backed up by data. So that's the long answer. The short answer to how dangerous is drug use during pregnancy in and of itself, not very. When we have drug use and pregnancy within the systems that we have created to harass, stigmatize, and criminalize pregnant people who use drugs, extremely dangerous. The dangers are from involvement with law enforcement, getting beat up, locked up, raped, or worse. The dangers are from having your employment taken away, from having your right to housing taken away, from losing your student aid, from having your very children, your beating heart outside your body ripped away from you. Those are the dangers of substance use during pregnancy, not really much related to the drugs themselves. I've taken care of lots of folks who are taking prescribed stimulants for ADD, for example, such as um, Adderall and Ritalin and other amphetamines, which are structurally almost the same as methamphetamine. And I don't, your listeners may be aware that methamphetamine is a Schedule II medication that's prescribed to people as young as six years old for um, narcolepsy, um, attention difficulties, and other things. I've taken care of these folks, and they're they're fine, and their kids are fine. And it's not about the drugs. It's about the context of that oppression and harassment and criminalization. Yeah, I would say that um, the question should probably be framed like, you know, like, what are the dangers of poverty during pregnancy? What are the dangers of of capitalism? I mean, really, like, you know, all of the things that are more harmful, like Joel said, it's not, it's mitigating the harm caused by the drug war. That's what's really harmful. It's not the substances themselves. Because, you know, like social determinants of health, if you look at long-term impacts, you know, of people who've been exposed in utero to substances and others, you know, that were also exposed, but grew up in a different environment, um, you know, what the, the difference is between, you know, having the housing instability or food instability, those are the things that impact long-term and also like during pregnancy, right? Like, you know, cortisol, the hormonal like cause of stress that, that, that women experience because of all of these things during pregnancy those have lasting impacts. And I, I mean, I don't have any data to support this statement, but I would venture to say that that, that uh, experiencing trauma, secondary trauma, you know, like epigenetics is a real thing. In fact, there have been like the, it was like the Dutch famine. There was a huge study uh, done about a whole group of people that experienced uh, famine and that their offspring went on to like a large, large sample, I think, I may, I may have this wrong, but went on, there, there, there's uh, uh, evidence of, of some pretty significant mental health issues just one generation afterwards. So like epigenetics is a real thing. And so circling back to my tangential rant is that, you know, I'd venture to say that, you know, like 
it's the harms caused by the drug war and the harms caused by just the structure, the foundation of how we as a, as a culture and society are formed that uh, the question should be framed, like how do those things harm a pregnancy and not necessarily the substances themselves. I'm going to see your rant and raise it another one, <laughs> which is to say just pregnancy and um, or what people do to get pregnant if they have to have, you know, interventions with hormones. I mean, there are some powerful, crazy things that happen to your body during pregnancy as far as like just, you know, the volume and the ratios of, you know, water to fat and the hormones that are coursing through you and the things that happen in order to precipitate, you know, implanting an embryo and then giving birth to a fetus. These are some serious things that are happening. Uh, and yet we don't necessarily look at those as, as the harms. And there are some harms from them. I mean, people are incredibly vulnerable. A lot of people have their first experience of mental illness or diagnosed condition uh, during pregnancy or the first year postpartum. The first year postpartum is an incredibly dangerous year for a lot of people. We also just know how many people, we forget that pregnancy and childbirth is inherently dangerous. And as much as we want to stack the odds in our favor, the truth is a certain number of babies aren't going to make it to birth. They're going to be miscarried or they're going to die in utero. A certain number are going to die in birth. A certain number of of parents are going to die in birth or from complications that happen with birth. And also just that genetic anomalies and things like that, those things are normal and natural. And yet we try to create a link between substance use and them that really dismisses all the things that we, we really know that we don't have control over. Childbirth is still scary and dangerous. I just want to add one thing, and that is to say we have to have we can't have this conversation without discussing racial disparity. And I think that um, you know our healthcare system has done a, a terrible job. We are living in an incredibly unhealthy society, and especially when it comes to access for healthcare for people of color. Like even before we started talking about this issue, like women of color have been on the the short end of the stick uh, in terms of just normal pregnancy normal quote unquote pregnancy to begin with. And so, you know, I think the healthcare system in and of itself has a lion's share to blame, to, you know, to blame for negative impacts, you know, or long-term impacts on fetuses um, just by nature of the fact that like women of color don't really get access to good prenatal care in the first place. Like, and so, you know, it's those systems again, you know, that are to blame for, for these, for long, long lasting uh, negative impacts and consequences. Yeah. That is such a good point that, you know, you could take literally no drugs at all during a pregnancy and still have um, an undesired outcome. All kinds of things can go wrong during a pregnancy. Suddenly you introduce a drug and the same thing happens and you blame the drug. You don't talk about the structural things or just genetic variations that can cause that. Uh, let's talk about structural violence. Uh, this is this concept uh, that I think, you know, some people might be confused by what structural, structural violence is and how to recognize it. Um, but maybe a good example is drug testing, uh, which plays such an outsized role in the whole realm of parenting, unfortunately, um, because, you know, of course, a positive urine screen 
is not at all an indicator of whether somebody can be a good parent or not. It really only tells you one thing, if the drug is present or not. So how does structural violence fit into this whole equation? Drug testing and drug screening and the screening of bodily fluids, first of all, is such a flawed system. Um, I think one of the reasons it exists is it feels like an easy test to do. Anybody can do it. The ones that they use are relatively cheap. They're not accurate. Again, what is a drug test or drug screen even looking for? Say if I'm looking in somebody's urine, what I'm going to see is I'm going to see certain metabolites that can come from various sources. I'm not necessarily going to know what the dose was, uh, the how long ago it was taken, what setting it was taken in, whether it was prescribed or not. All I can tell you is there are certain molecules there. Um, hopefully, I'm even able to tell you that accurately. And again, we know a lot of these tests are not accurate. Um, but what does that tell you about somebody? It doesn't tell you whether or not somebody has a substance use disorder. It doesn't tell you whether or not uh, the metabolites, where the metabolites necessarily came from. I know drug company, the companies that create the urine screens and the meconium screening and the cord tissue screening will tell you otherwise that they can reliably differentiate but yeah, it's it's up for argument if you look at the evidence. But you you don't know what somebody took, why they took it, what the effect necessarily was, let alone how much got to the baby who is uh, feeding and taking your milk, or the baby who's the fetus who's receiving it through the umbilical cord, whether or not what they even got was bioavailable to them. So it's this cheap and easy technology that gets used in such catastrophic ways. And I'm, I'm really shocked um, that it goes unchallenged and unquestioned and that more um, drug treatment facilities, prisons, hospitals aren't sued because some pretty terrible things can happen to you when one of these, you know, when you pee in a cup and then somebody tells you what they think it means. And it certainly doesn't say like you, you know, we're mentioning Troy, it doesn't say whether or not somebody is a good parent or is going to be a good parent. It doesn't say whether or not they have a substance use disorder or dependency that could be treated and supported with positive interventions. It, it, again, the, the structural violence that happens I think often begins with walking into an office, being asked to sign a consent form and being asked to pee in a cup. Yeah. And Joelle, I, I want to kind of turn to you because you have this job as a travel nurse. I know you've gone all over the country. You've seen so many different disparities in how healthcare works versus the South versus the Pacific Northwest, Arizona, all over. Um, what What have you kind of experienced? So there has been a little bit of change in um, in urine screening and urine testing. Um, I have m recently seen more and more hospitals starting to offer confirmatory testing, which has been a best practice for several decades. So it's cool that they're finally now starting to do that in some places. But like Erica said, a urine drug screen, which is the kind that most people have experienced, you pee in a cup, they get the results back in a couple hours. Um, it's called a screen because it's not a test. It does not tell you anything for sure. When the results come back from a urine drug screen now, which is good, um, 
if it could be said to be good that anything about this can be said to be good. It's good that the results show up on my lab report saying presumptive positive or presumptive negative, because that indicates to any clinician reading it or any judge or social worker for that matter, that this is not a final result. Now, I it's, it's still pretty few places that are doing um, automatic confirmatory testing, which is um, it, a much more expensive machine. It tends to take longer. Very often, unless you're at a large regional hospital center, it's a send out lab. So that means it, it has to go to another facility and then the results come back. So I'm seeing more and more of that. But Really, as a, as a nurse, and I've worked in postpartum and NICU, I primarily work in NICU, so I'm taking care of the babies. I don't care about the drug screen results at all. They do not inform the way that we care for uh, pregnant people or babies. They are done solely to give to the social worker to manage whether or not the hospital is going to go after the custody of this baby. That is the purpose of, of drug screening in the perinatal period. I've been doing this work for 17 years, and I've only seen one case where um, we could not figure out what was going on with the baby. And then after, I think it was three days, the mom finally kind of broke down and tearfully told us um, that she had been, you know, taking some pills. But um, again, I don't see this as a problem with that mom. I see that mom as doing the best she can to protect her family because she knew that when she told us her baby would, uh, she would have a case opened and she would be at risk of losing her baby and her life in some places, um, not in Washington where I'm from, but in some states, if you have an allegation of child abuse upheld by CPS, you are on a child abuse registry. And so that means that you can't, maybe, maybe you work at a daycare, you can't do that anymore because, um, because of this stain on you. So I think that in that situation, that, that mom was responding as best she could to the barriers that we put in front of her. And once it became clear that her baby needed care, she immediately well, you know, not immediately, but she told us because she loved her baby so much, she was willing to risk all of that just so that her baby uh, could be treated and could be comfortable. Um, so, but that's not typical. Typically, we know about the substance use long before the person walks in the door to deliver. We are only doing those tests to collect evidence against our patients, which is not only illegal, but it is against every code of ethics by the American Nurses Association, the American Medical Association, the National Association of Social Workers, I forget what they're called, um, National Association of Perinatal Social Workers. It goes against what is recommended by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It goes against what's recommended by the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses. I could go on. This is a bad thing that we're doing, and we should stop doing it. I just wanted to add that um, when we're talking about structural, you know, really, it just boils down to a person walking into a hospital and the social worker or the nurse, the charge nurse of that day, deciding whether or not they are going to drug test you based on, you know, whether you're in a public or a private hospital, the color of your skin. If you look like you're poor, if you look like you have money, um, it, what kind of mood they're in that day, if their cornflakes were not crunchy enough, 
Um, and, you know, and whether or not you're going to be on the receiving end of their, you know, savior complex, for lack of a better term. Um, and if I sound grumpy about that, it's because I am <laughs> unapologetically. So it's so funny to me because I just, it's like, we need all of this data and all this information to like back up what's common sense. Like, it's just like, just common sense. Like it does, you know, and yet even still, it's like, what does it even matter anyway? Cause nobody believes in science anymore anyway. So what's the point of going through all of the trouble, you know, like at all think about it. Um, you know, and the truth is, is like, it starts at the, if you want to talk about solution, cause that's where I live. I live in solution land, um, because I live in action world and I, I hate talking about shit. I like doing it. Um, and so, I mean, I love talking to you guys, of course. Um, and I love talking about this topic. Um, but like my frustration lies in just like, as we talked about, you know, when we were opening, it's like, we have all of these great conversations and yet they don't like, they are, they're not going anywhere. We really need to like, we need to move forward the conversation into some action and, and really like where this drug testing topic of drug, drug testing, where it's going to ha- change is really, we have got to get providers um, and, and clinicians and people who are interacting um, like boots on the ground. We have got to get, um, them involved in, in, in changing the culture, um, of, of how people are treated, um, people who use drugs in general and, and especially pregnant and parenting people who use drugs. Um, that's how, that's how when we talk about structural violence, that's the structural violence we have to work towards tearing down and we, we have to get those people involved. Um, so that this concept of drug testing really, we, the drug tests are a moot point because it starts with the person. And I, I had forgotten to mention earlier. Yeah. Like, like Rhea mentioned who gets tested is very important uh, because that's the entry point for all of these harmful interventions. And I've, I've worked at public hospitals and private hospitals and everything in between in, I think I'm at nine states now, East coast, West coast, and in the middle. And what I find is that if you're at a public hospital that serves primarily uh, Medicaid recipients in your community, you are guaranteed to have a drug test. If you come into one of the bigger um, like HMO hospitals, like um, Kaiser Banner, Group Health, those kinds of things, it's much less likely because you have insurance through that hospital and they don't really want to know. Um, if you're not seeking care, they would just, they just don't want to know. And so we see just so many less symptomatic babies when testing is not a thing. And that is not because there are less babies that are exposed to substances. That is because there are less babies that are taken from their mother's arms. Because if you take any baby in the immediate newborn period and take it away from its parents and put it in a noisy, bright NICU with a bunch of strangers and weird noises and smells, it's going to be upset and it's going to hinder the normal development and even the normal health of that baby. We know that being held by your parent 
helps babies to stabilize their blood sugar and their temperature and their states. And we know that uh, they feed better if they're able to um, chest or breastfeed and be uh, and have human milk rather than formula. So all of the interventions that we do to babies who are suspected to be exposed or confirmed to be exposed to substances amplify the signs and symptoms of withdrawal. Um, you know, formula is absolutely a lifesaver and I'm a huge fan of formula. However, it's just not as good as human milk. And so when one of the primary sources of discomfort and pain in neonatal opioid withdrawal is from stomach upset and diarrhea and problems of that nature, just the act of taking the baby away from the mom and feeding it formula instead of human milk is going to create some of those issues if they weren't already there. Uh, so, you know, I want to go back to something you said, Joelle, about how, you know, a positive drug screen can automatically tr uh, trigger this, um, you know, label of child abuse that, uh, you know, if, if you are pregnant and using drugs or you're a parent and using drugs and they catch you, you're automatically labeled a child abuser in some states. I mean, we've done other episodes on this. We interviewed Elizabeth Bryko, um, who... You know, she got her kids taken away even though she was using methadone, which was legally prescribed to her. Um, that's just kind of the extent of how some of these policies are so irrational and so harmful. Like someone on methadone getting their kid taken away, how does that help anybody? But let's talk a little bit more about this, like how drug use can trigger this child abuse stigma. I want to say first, um, one of the things that people need to understand fundamentally is that once you enter into this system of family surveillance or child protective services or family regulation, whatever it wants to be called, it is not like it is with our legal system. You do not have a right to representation. You do not have a right to informed consent. You uh, do not get to um, present evidence or it really is a system unlike anything else. Um, really, the child welfare system and child custody system, um, people end up capitulating and complying as best as they can because that's really the only solution. Um, it is a system that can take away from you that which is most precious and not have any, you don't have any rights, you don't have any recourse. And people need to just fundamentally understand that it is not a system that's fair. It's not a system where, you know, it's it's purely adversarial and arbitrary what happens. And, you know, again, if you want to look at the evidence, we have plenty of evidence of who gets tested, who gets referred, who gets reported, and who doesn't. And it's going to be the same people who always are subjective to systems. But this system is unique in that it can pull your family apart and there's very little you can do about it. You don't really have any rights or recourse. I mean, I think the thing that's um, really unique about, you know, the child protective services is, well, really, I mean, any, any, any the criminalization of drug use in general, um, having been a person who I um, am proud to say that the only thing I've successfully graduated from in my life is drug court. And that, um, that, uh, <laughs> that took, um, three years and I damn near went to prison, but because I'm white, 
um, and I had a lawyer, um, and I got to go to a treatment instead, um, I was able by the skin of my teeth to, to get out and away from that one. Um, but I will say that like, um, you know, and then also having had a CPS case opened against me, um, at the birth of my child, um, due to egregious malfeasance, which is, a, that could be a whole other show in and of itself, which I'm not really going to go into all the details of that right now, but suffice it to say that I received really terrible care and, um, had to deliver via emergency C-section at 25 weeks because I was denied, um, antibiotics. Point I'm making to all of this is that there are, for example, there are no treatment, there are not treatment beds available for people who are pregnant and using drugs. So the remedy, uh, one of the first things that they'll tell you is that you need to get into treatment. Well, how are you supposed to get into treatment when there's nowhere to go, right? Or how are you, when you, where are you, where are you supposed to put your kids? Or how are you supposed to maintain a job? And like with drug courts and just general, um, like general probation, um, these systems that are put upon you to somehow, you know, do your diligence of being worthy of existence, I guess. I don't know, because you're a terrible human, because you use drugs, because the world is a flaming ball of poo. Anyway, um, uh, you know, those like you you can't hold down a job because you have you have to go to court three times a week and you have to meet this probation officer or you can't you can't uh you know be uh compliant with CPS's uh you know rules about visitation or um getting into treatment when there is no treatment available or medication assisted treatment isn't considered a viable treatment option in and of itself so you know you uh, you're you're wanting to get into methadone which is the gold standard of treatment and care by the way for opioid use disorder not just if you're pregnant but across the board and yet that's not considered by a drug court or by a, a child protective services to be a treatment right so like that's that's not considered to be treatment even though it is and so you have judges and lawyers and social workers making decisions about your health care who are in no way uh, credentialed to do so. So I guess the point that I'm making is like, it's almost impossible. Like these systems, you know, they're, they're different in that they are designed not to serve or help the people that are involved in them, uh, the parents and families, the rules and regulations, and I'll say even within all pretty much nonprofits in general that that are in human services, the rules and regulations that are out there are there to serve the people who are working in them, not to do any help or good for the families or parents or people that are having to interface with them. To kind of go back to your uh, language and the question about so many states considering substance use to be um, equal to child abuse, I would say, yeah, a, a few states explicitly say that, but all states act like that is the case, um, regardless of what they say. And we see this a lot. There are places that just have beautiful policies, like the policy of my dreams, but it's not it's not enacted. And what actually happens is just this same old, same old that we've been hearing about. And it becomes a situation 
situation where if you use substances while you're pregnant, you are considered to be guilty until you prove yourself innocent. However, you are you just had a baby and you're you can't walk and you're bleeding from your vagina and you have like a thousand appointments in the next couple of weeks, even if you don't have to go to your methadone clinic every single day by a certain like 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. Even if you don't have all that, you are expected without a lawyer to prove your innocence because it's like Erica said, it's not the same justice system that uh, we're used to, although that justice system isn't the same justice system either, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, And I just want to reiterate Rhea's point about drug courts. Drug courts are viewed by a lot of people as, you know, uh, a step in the right direction or better than. But what we find when we do studies is that people tend to be involved in drug courts, involved, which means uh, surveilled, um, random checkups at your home, having to jump through all these kind of hoops. And drug court involvement usually lasts longer than the initial, um, you know, sentence would have been if they had gone through the regular channels. And so that can be extremely harmful for people and families um, and just puts up more barriers. And finally, to reiterate what Rhea said, because I think we could probably just spend an hour saying this over and over, judges are not doctors. It is not okay for judges to mandate what kind of treatment you should have for substance use disorder, which we all, everybody say it with me, we all agree that substance use disorder is a health condition. And yet we allow judges to prescribe treatment. uh, And then we punish people if they don't follow the prescribed treatment, which, which is absurd. And that's not a way to respond to a healthcare problem. So I think that Uh, We need to decide as a society, like, is it or isn't it? Because we're not acting. What we say and what we do are completely different things. You know, the whole thing about this is that it it doesn't even achieve its its intended goals. You know, we're we're not making mothers or uh, parents safer. We're doing the opposite. And like, there's a lot of data to, to, to support that. Like, hey, everything we're doing isn't working. It's not we're we're not making anybody safer we're just making the problem worse and it's just it's just unkind it's the wrong thing to do and i one of the things that brought me kind of this to whole whole topic was my first baby died within a few hours of their birth and when they died everybody said i'm so sorry this is so horrible this is terrible We'll do everything we can to help you and support you. We'll make sure that things. And I sat in that presentation where Joelle and some parents who had been identified as substance users and as having exposed their babies were being told the exact opposite, which was this bad thing that happened, even if it's unrelated to the substances, because it almost always is your fault. You're wrong. You're a bad parent. There's something wrong with a system, a person who says, I'm going to decide right now whether you're, you're a good parent or a bad parent, whether you're allowed to be with your child or not allowed to be. I mean, that it can it be more cruel than that? I don't know. So shifting gears a little bit, I'm really excited to talk about this family toolkit that the three of you authored. Uh, you helped draft it for the National Harm Reduction Coalition, which started as a project with the National Perinatal Association in 2015. It's a really great guide. 
I have one of the old drafts here, um, but people can get the new up-to-date one on perinatalharmreduction.org. It covers all kinds of drugs from cannabis to stimulants to benzos. It covers different injection strategies and alternatives such as boofing, uh, different treatment options if that's what you're looking for. It even has a section on trauma-informed care and knowing your rights. I know that the process for getting this toolkit together and uh, – and, and getting it published has been a really long ordeal. And I don't know if you want to get into some of the details, but I think that it's interesting that this guide was requested by, I guess, the National Harm Reduction Coalition. So it was, it started with the National Perinatal Association mm-hmm. um, out of that 2015 meeting in Tennessee where Erica and I met. And then um, we formed a work group and we were, it was really a, an exciting time. Um, yeah. And then rejoined just a couple months after. So real quick, I just want to point out that the um, in alternatives to injecting stuff um Harm Reduction Coalition did not want to include that. So it's on our website. But all of the other sections you mentioned are in the uh, Joint um, Academy of Perinatal Harm Reduction, National Harm Reduction Coalition booklet that is available on our website. So we started this work group. It was super exciting. We initially had tons of really big names who I will not mention on this podcast, but, um, you know, thought leaders and researchers from universities around the country and the world even. Um, And we just we were plugging along and it took us a really long time to get a draft going about um two and a half, three years before we had our first draft ready to submit to the board of National Perinatal Association. Um, And during that time, we had all these like big name folks coming in and out of the work. We had lots of people with lived experience coming in and out of the work and editing and writing. And we had, you know, and everything in between. Um, So it was really exciting. And we put together what we thought was a, a really amazing draft. And then we submitted it to National Perinatal Association, who, you know, through the course of this process, we had put on a conference with them um, dedicated to perinatal substance use. And we had put out a position statement and we had done all this kind of prep work. So from from our perspective, we thought we were all on the same page. But when the toolkit came out and it went out to the whole board, which um, a lot of those folks hadn't really been super involved in the work that had gone before. So for a good handful of these less active board members, it was new. And the reaction we got was was really quite a shock to us, as it appeared to be a shock to those uh, board members who hadn't seen it before. Um, so they rejected almost all of it. They wanted to keep pieces here and there. But our, our reaction was, No, the whole point of this is to give people comprehensive information and comprehensive support. So we're we're not going to chop this up piecemeal and just, you know, release the parts that are, you know, more widely acceptable and palatable. We're not going to do that because that stuff kind of already exists. Like the whole point of this project was that the guidance and the information out there now is bad and incomplete. And we were attempting to correct that. So that just was a no-go for us. And it ended up with us leaving the National Perinatal Association on very good terms. They do kick-ass work in every other area. They, they're, they're just an amazing organization. I encourage everybody to, to join and donate. I'm still a member and I donate every year. They're, they're awesome. However, they just, it, it wasn't, 
it wasn't going to work for this project for, well, because they told us it wasn't going to work, basically. So then after that, we we already had all of the drafts, which you have a few copies of yourself. Um, and so we we kind of pulled back and regrouped. And while we were doing that, we got an offer from the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Just, uh, you know, we we have personal and professional relationships with them. We've worked together uh, for years and we presented at their conferences every every two years. So somebody reached out and said, you know, HRC Harm Reduction Coalition is interested in developing something for pregnancy and we know that you've already done most of the work so can can we join together for this so we took um all of the all of the stuff that we had created I think what did we have like eight different uh mini booklets or zines Erica we we had a lot of content already it was a matter of the and again it was you have to find who like your champions and your allies are And it was actually some people we know with the New York State Department of Health who went to Harm Reduction Coalition. And yeah, we care about this. So uh, again, you know, thank goodness for... um, Alan Clear. Well-placed, yes, for (laughs) Alan Clear. We love him. People placed, well-placed where they need to be. Yeah. So we, um, we did a bunch of tweaks on our content. Like we said, um, they wanted to cut some stuff mostly because they have it covered elsewhere in their um, literature. So they just didn't want to duplicate. And, and the toolkit did end up being 110 pages. So they might've had the right idea. Everything we write ends up just being massive because it's such a complex topic. So we did that. We wrote a few extra um, other, other sections that they requested and we partnered for the legal section with Movement for Family Power, um, Elephant Circle, and National Advocates for Pregnant Women, because, you know, our expertise is in the advocacy, the policy, and the, you know, medical science. And we we know enough about the legal stuff to do our jobs, but we do not claim to be the legal experts. We like to, um, we like to reach out to folks who, who are lawyers and who know about that stuff. And so that's that's kind of how that went. And it it was really surprising to be rejected by NPA on one level, but then on another level it wasn't. Well, uh, working I, working in harm reduction for so long, you just you realize that uh like I said, there's a lot of stuff on paper that's really beautiful and then it's it's not always translated into real life action. And so it, it was surprising, but then it also kind of wasn't. I think what we fundamentally butt up against over and over again, and and again, it's like, how do people change their minds? How do people change their behaviors? People don't love being told that what they're doing is wrong and hurtful and harmful. And then when you tell them it's not even evidence-based, it that's a hard sell. It's It's hard to get people on your side when you tell them that, but... I think there are enough people out there who believe this, that maybe at some point we really are going to start tipping the system because again, um, the evidence is on our side. And if you want to be a good person, um, you follow the evidence and you treat people well, but you're not going to always win people over with publications and literature and conferences and, evidence um we each just have to keep doing it yeah that's really important to me is the evidence you know like that's what's been surprising to me ever since i first started covering this topic is that there's all this evidence 
showing that everything we're doing with drug use and pregnancy is wrong and parenting. And I mean, it's a little easier to be like, I, I don't know why it is, but it's a little easier to just talk about a regular person using drugs on the street and how we can help them. But if you apply those same principles to somebody that has a fetus, it's suddenly the whole landscape of the conversation changes. And I don't know if it has to do with some kind of like paternal instinct in everybody that we suddenly have to treat people who have the capacity for pregnancy differently. I don't know where that impulse comes from. Like, like a lot of what we've talked about, um, you know, it just applies the same stuff that applies to regular people applies to people who have the capacity for pregnancy. But at the root of all this is autonomy. And I think that's why I've been so interested in this topic is because if you if you use drugs and then you become pregnant in some places, suddenly like you lose your autonomy because you, you have this fetus inside of you. And that's really bizarre that we have this attitude. Really, I think, Troy, the reason that um, that we have trouble, you know, especially when it comes to pregnancy is because we we are forced to look at, at ourselves as a society and what we value you know, and what we have to give up in order to have a win. Like, it's a really easy just to blame that. And this is not how I believe. Okay, so don't don't freak out. Uh, it's just like, it's really easy to blame Joe Schmo, um, who sits on the corner with his cup, and he's just a damn drunk. And why doesn't he get a jab? And like, you know, like, it's his fault. He's homeless and blah, 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 blah. It's really easy to blame that dude. But first, like, we live in a paternalistic society where, first of all, it's like, let's be real, women and people with uteruses don't have agency over their bodies. I don't know where, what planet you've been living on, but it's not Earth. Like, that's not a thing. It doesn't happen here. Like, so that's number one, is like, you know, we don't, we don't have autonomy. We don't have bodily autonomy. None of us do, but especially people with uteruses and the capacity to, to, to be pregnant. But then, you know, the, the second layer is like, you know, we have to look at like the structures that are in place and why, you know, if we're confronted with homelessness and we're confronted with poverty, well, getting Joe Schmo off the street, that that's his own fault. You know, he just doesn't want the services, but like, but if we, but, but women and, and, and children, you know, there's something mu must be inherently wrong with them. And, you know, there's there's no way that that uh, that, you know, what we have to offer as a society isn't what they you know, what they want. Like we have to confront ourselves and what we value, I guess. And I think that's why, you know, that's why it's harder to to address those issues, because we don't have we have the capability. It's just we don't do it. You know, if we want I mean you know, it's the same thing with housing. Like there's plenty of houses. There's this idea of scarcity is so permeates our culture. Like there isn't enough, you know, and yet the truth is there's plenty, there is enough to go around, but we have to live in this state of panic. Otherwise who, who's, I sound paranoid when I say this, but who's going to be controlling the people? Like if we don't live in the state of scarcity and, and panic and fear, then the state has no control. I, I think I, I was thinking about this before um, before this recording. And I think that my interpretation of what Rhea is trying to say, I guess, is 
um, these systems are are working as they're intended to to guide people into um, that that false sense of scarcity and that desperation. And the systems that we have in place to deal with substance use and particularly substance use in pregnancy uh, perpetuate themselves and they create these problems. Um, and it just goes back to like what Ria was saying too. It's not Joe Schmo. It's our systems that are to blame. So like one example that I use a lot is needle litter. Everybody's very upset about needle litter in their neighborhoods and they blame individual substance users or um, programs that serve them. And um, but what we actually should be thinking about is what are what are we doing to force people to drop their needle when they're done with it? And I'll tell you, we're criminalizing needle possession. If it is a criminal act to possess a needle, you are going to drop it as soon as you possibly can. That's just how people work. So by criminalizing syringes, we are encouraging people to litter them on the ground um, by not providing um access to um, biohazard containers to dispose of needles, we are encouraging people to drop them on the ground. It would be really easy to expand um, access to biohazard containers like you see in, you know, airport bathrooms and some gas stations and stuff. It would be super easy to just put those all over the place and it would be uh, relatively cheap. And then we wouldn't have needle litter if we decriminalized needles and provided a safe place to dispose of them, that would fix needle litter. I mean, there would obviously there's still going to be a couple here and there, but for the most part, those are the problems that we should be focusing on, not the individual people. It's, it's our systems that are encouraging certain behaviors such as needle littering. And we see that um, in all aspects of the drug war, including perinatal stuff. Well, just for me too, again, it's like, well, so what is so unique about this situation where we have people who are pregnant and parenting? And I think it goes back to something just very fundamental that, well, one, we give birth to these babies that aren't fully cooked yet. They're not really done. Human beings give birth to these neonates that are vulnerable and alone and need constant care. And there is no such thing as a baby alone in the world. That baby is in relationship to a parent and a family. And we all are, we all come from families. We all find families. We all make families and that's because we need each other. And when we start breaking that tie between the baby and the people they need, um, we know that's wrong. And we need to think about it. Okay, so, uh, you know, I really want to talk about something that Rhea kept bringing up, which is, you know, it's great that we have this conversation and this podcast and all this stuff. But what can people actually do about this? Like, how do we really actually get together and fight this injustice? So I usually answer this question. Um, the way I think about it is kind of three tiers or three battlefronts. And the first one is the environment. So in your clinic or in your syringe services program or wherever, whichever sphere you are in, make sure that it is a welcoming place for people who are pregnant and who use drugs. And that can be as simple as putting up a poster saying, welcome, we're glad you're here. We have several such posters on our website, perinatalharmreduction.org that you can print for free and put up. We encourage you to do so. The other thing about that is just talking with, um, 
talking with your coworkers and your colleagues and your uh, clients or participants and the people that you serve and making sure everybody um, is at least aware of, of perinatal of perinatal harm reduction to make sure everybody is aware of how to care for pregnant and parenting people who use drugs. And then I think the second front is um, really the hearts and minds thing, which is the hardest one. I think that each of us has to really take a hard look at ourselves. And I, and I don't mean people, you know, each of you out there, I mean, me, I mean, you, Troy, and Erica and Rhea, and we all have these, these biases inside of us, because we were raised in a biased society. And um, it's, it's impossible to grow up and not have these feelings. And um, occasionally, Rhea, Erica, and I talk about it, like in a meeting, something will come up, and we'll just be like, "Ooh, I just had a really ugly thought slash feeling pop up. And that's something that I need to work on. And so I think that people, especially people that, uh, that want to care for or work with this population, we need to be constantly assessing ourselves for those biases, because they're there. And I don't care who you are, they're there. Um, and, and so that's something that I think that we need to do. And we also need to call out our coworkers or our bosses or um, people in power that are perpetrating these abuses and harassment of this population. And it, it can be up to each individual in each situation, whether you go with the meeting the person where they're at and, um, you know, correcting them with kindness or in some cases, it needs to be abrupt. And that person needs to feel ashamed and embarrassed, because sometimes people don't change their behavior. If you, you know, you can give certain folks or certain organizations a thousand gentle hints, and they'll never get it. What you need to do is put them on blast and embarrass them and uh, make them ashamed of themselves so that they will change their behavior. And that's indicated sometimes, not always, and not first, usually, but sometimes it is. And we need, um, especially folks like me that have a relative amount of power in some of these systems, we need to put our positions on the line because those of us with that kind of power have, we have the power. So if we're not using it, then what are we doing? Um, you, how could we live with ourselves if we have this power and we don't intervene? Um, you know, all the sayings like, you know, good, good men standing by and all that, like we, you, you can't just stand by anymore. Um, and then on the third level, which is a, a hard for a whole other reason, is I think systems and policy. Um, whatever, whatever realm you move around in, um, find out what their written policies are. Find out what the workflows are with um, folks like this. Do you, do you even have anything for these folks? Um, if you don't, we can help you. Give us your money. But, um, but that's really important because we need to have that guidance for, um, you know, maybe somebody's new. It's their first month on the job and in walks a pregnant person with substance use disorder. They need to have that guidance to go to and just, you know, get a few quick bullet points like what am I supposed to do? How can I help? And so it, it needs to happen on multiple levels um, at the same time. I think that you know, in order for us to get involved, we need to stop. Well, the, the point of contact is like people who use drugs, who are they interfacing with other people who use drugs? And, you know, it is, it is bias. It is implicit bias. For me, when I found harm reduction, 
it's at first I thought I remember getting into an argument with Shiloh um, from the People's Harm Reduction Alliance um, over a decade ago. I basically said, you know, you don't really give a fuck about people. You just want to keep them strung out. So they keep coming and accessing your services. Like I actually thought this, right? Like I believed that harm reduction was just this like cyclical twisted way of keeping people fucked up and like essentially poverty pimping, you know, like, but for a different reason. And that's because I had carried around and internalized so much of the drug war bullshit like, you know, like, thank God that I went to, you know, that I spent so much time incarcerated because it made me realize, you know, that I, that I don't want to be that person, that kind of thing. Like, that's, who says that? How twisted of it is, uh, like, of a society are we living in where a person is thankful to be locked in a fucking cage? Like, that's ridiculous. So, you know, from that, like, you know, I, I had to unpack all of this bias um, around substance use and what that looks like and what that means. And it's continues to be a journey for me, even now, 10 years, you know, 10 years into over 10 years into my relationship with harm reduction. But, you know, I think having conversations as a movement where we've started to do that within leadership, really, we need to start, you know, talking about this with other drug users, you know, um, we need to start like educating drug users. Drug users are the first people with the best ideas. <laughs> I mean, like, thank drug users for, for naloxone distribution, you know, thank drug users for syringe exchange. Like, those are the people that are, that are smart. <laughs> um, drug users are the ones that are, that know what's going on and have the most power, believe it or not. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think, it's, it's, I think ha having those conversations with other drug users and then syringe access programs, you know, I, I've been working in syringe exchange for far too long and I love it. And also I, I love it. Um, and, um, you know, like there's this, this idea like syringe exchange programs or syringe access programs, they're, they're stretched so thin and are expected to do so much with so very little, you know, and I get that. And that's really hard to add another layer of expectation on like, well, on top of all this other shit, now you need to be able to, you know, to be able to provide services for this population. And it's like, well, you know, the, the, that can be really frustrating because it's like, I can't, I don't have, I operate on a staff of two and volunteers from the public health school down the road. How can I possibly be, you know, be able to, you know, sustainably serve this population. And I get that, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to, like, like Joelle was saying, I mean, I think a poster on the wall, there's this notion that people, and I've had this conversation several times that pregnant people don't come and get, don't access services, you know? And it's like, well, A, what do you have x-ray vision? You can see through people's like bodies and tell if they're pregnant or not. And B, like, maybe they don't come because they stop because they don't feel welcomed. And so sticking that poster up on the wall and just normalizing it, like normalizing it, like we normalize a poster about hepatitis C on the wall, like normalizing it and, and, and creating, I, I really believe that it's a call. I, I am challenging a call to action on integrating reproductive health into harm reduction, 
and making those two things synonymous with each other. Because the things that we're fighting against in our movement, the, 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 the things that we fight against, the, the negative consequences of, of the failed drug war, you know, they really start with babies. I mean, at the point of contact, where the root of the root is, it's generational. We can create the least amount of harm by getting involved at the very beginning. That's where it starts, I think. I, so I encourage people, and you don't have to do it alone. Like, we are here, and there's lots of other amazing organizations that are out there, Movement for Family Power, for example, you know, Bronx Defenders. Like, there's, there's a lot of people. Canada, I don't even get started about those people up there. They do some amazing work. And us. And, you know, like, let's join together and call upon us. Like, we, we are here, and we want to... We want to to help and you don't have to do it alone. And so I yeah, I just I, I think that, you know, first of all, we have to educate drug users and then we just need to educate ourselves um, within the harm reduction community. And yeah, that's 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 my rant. Call upon us. Let's do it. Like put your money where your mouth is. I, I will vouch for all three of you that you have all been really great people to talk to uh, as I've reported on m- not numerous issues. And uh, yeah, people should reach out to all of you uh, if you, they have any questions about this or, or want to collaborate. Yeah, I would say you know, the same things that Joel and Maria said, you know, first of all, inform yourself so you know what you're talking about, you know, address what it is that you think and question whether or not it's correct but there are so many people have been dealing with these issues for so long. There's so much collective wisdom in our communities about how to be a parent, how to be a somebody who's been hurt by the systems, how to be somebody who has, in spite of that, gone out and done amazing things to help each other. So, you know, it's there's so much to be gained when we talk to each other and when we share, when we play nice and uh, we just want to do more of that. And if this can be a vehicle to do that, then let's do it. Um, I just want to say, you know, be on the lookout um, for any legislation, um, get on yeah. to like some good listservs. NAPW puts out a pretty good um, newsletter that, you know, that um, talks about stuff that's coming up on the horizon be get your, get in, in, in informed about the, the landscape and recognize the intersectionality of all of this like you know you can't be against the drug war and not and not have your foot in in reproductive justice and i and i, I would and i would be cautious to say that this is reproductive justice those the reproductive justice movement fought long and hard and they they deserve their due and while while this is similar um this is it's not the same exact we're, we're different and so i want to i want to um to pause and and make sure that we we give credit and appreciation to to the women who 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 created and have moved that movement along mr song is another great organization um who does great work in the reproductive justice um, arena um so what's another sister song let's name some other ones y'all 
social advocates for pregnant women for a long time, you know, and now so many of the people are joining together in forces like, you know, out of those organizations have come to things like Movement for Family Power, you know, Bronx Defenders, JMAC, you know, for families and Birthrights Bar Association, Elephants, you know, again, the list can go on and on and on because this issue touches everywhere. So get get involved by getting on those lists. If you're volunteering at a harm reduction organization and you're interested, um, talk to the person who's the director of programming. See if you can, you know, put up a poster. Um, if you're in the birth working community, doulas are such a huge play, such a huge role in and making their advocates for pregnant people to begin with. So if you're a doula and, or if you are in any way associated with the birth work community, integrate some harm reduction into your, into your practice. Um, there's a really awesome organization called Cornerstone, uh, Cornerstone Doula Training. They are amazing and do some really awesome intersectional work around birth work and uh, reproductive justice. And, um, you know, and yeah, I mean, I think those are really great things and involve fucking people who use drugs in the conversations about things that you are doing. Um, if you want to be successful at what you do, if you want to help people, then put down your fucking cross and like, let the wood rot and allow the people who need, who deserve, who are the experts, not peers, but experts to drive, to drive what's the next step um, in, 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 in being successful as an organization or whatever it is that your mission is. It's really awesome. Are there any upcoming projects or stuff you want to promote or, or where can people find you if they want to learn more? Of course, there's uh, um, perinatalharmreduction.org. I, I've been working on, well, we, but um, more closely, my my baby um, over the last year. You can been... say it. It's Rhea's project. Yeah. <laughs> and we support her. <laughs> Absolutely, we do. Uh, well, no, I mean, we don't, we don't do anything. Um, you know, our APHR, my organization, we don't do anything, um, you know, separately. We all are collectively making decisions and choosing uh, which projects to take on and which ones not to. And, um, you know, it's, it's so yes. And it is my baby. So for the last year um, I've been working really closely with um, the urban survivors union, which is the national drug uh, drug users union here in the United States on a narco feminism story share project. And it's a really unique project um, whereby um, we're using, we're, we're, we're pushing back on tropes and narratives about pregnancy and parenting and people who use drugs. And we're utilizing um, stories um, that are written by participants, people with lived experience, um, um, marrying those stories with um, evidence. So for each story that's told, we're sort of pushing back on that trope with a piece of evidence um, and building out a toolkit um, to work with clinicians um, or um, or people who, uh, as a therapeutic tool for people who are um, using drugs themselves through unpacking um, bias, essentially. And it's been a really awesome project. Um, we have Katie Simon, who's an editor of Tits and Sass, 
Um, she's been kind of the editor of a lot of the stories. Um, and, um, you know, it's a really cool part. Like all of the, the women that have participated in writing stories, they're all paid, which I think is super rad and important to highlight that like people who use drugs, their labor is, um, an expertise is valued and they should be paid. And so, um, I love that. Um, and, um, you know, and we have um, Tracy Nichols, who's a professor, a, a public health professor um, at the University of North Carolina. Um, ha she's been like evaluating our process the entire time, which has been really cool. So um, she's she's been really helpful in a, keeping us on track because, I don't know, you've had the conversation with us for the past hour. Imagine doing that over a year. Dear God, it's like hurting cats. Um, but uh really awesome cats, sexy cats. Um, and so she, she's been there sort of helping us uh, stay on target and evaluating the, the project and finding a framework, a theoretical framework um, in which to plunk this in. So I think it's, it's a really exciting project because we know that um, storytelling has been a really powerful tool um, within social justice movements we're using it a lot more in order to to use storytelling um uh for advocacy um and um and it's cathartic um and therapeutic um but from a macro per perspective you know we want to change the hearts and minds and um and, and we want to nudge people and so i think you know using storytelling and then evidence um it has been is going to be a really interesting way to um, get clinicians and providers to change their minds about um, working with this population. And I will say that something really cool that sort of happened um, out of this is, you know, um, the the project took, well, we just finished, wrapped it up and it was about a year long, but all of the women that participated um, after having written the stories, but then sat through like, it was a day long training about the origin of the drug war, um, just like bodily autonomy systems, um, like the, the medical versus biopsychosocial view of addiction, all of these things. After having gone through that, they realized how much of themselves they were lied to. Like they had sort of this come to Jesus reckoning with the fact that like, they aren't terrible people. And really it's all of these systems that are terrible and it's a really beautiful thing to, to witness. So that project, um, we just wrapped it up and now we're getting ready to put a, a webinar together and we're sort of trying to figure out what next steps are in terms of like, okay, so this is a toolkit. So we're gonna be writing the toolkit and figuring out where, you know, what audience um, it, it would be best suited for. But stay tuned for that because, um, it's 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 going to be you're, you'll be hearing a lot more about that in the future so that's us and the urban survivors union and if you haven't heard about them i definitely recommend checking out their website and donating to them they do amazing work um about with you know just drug user activism and policy and advocacy and stuff like that um, so that's my project speaking of the urban survivors union we just had uh aaron ferguson on i know yeah he's yeah. great yeah, he's awesome. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in and um, 
put in my little plug for Narcofem. So as, as a travel nurse, I have to do orientation every three to six months, again, uh, like new hire orientation at hospitals. So I have been subjected to thousands, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little, of anti-bias trainings. And, um, and none of them work. And they're all, they're all terrible. But this I'm, I'm so excited about this project because I think hearing stories in people's own words and knowing that they're true and that they're real people has so much potential to, to really kind of knock people out of their comfort zone and get them to start coming to terms with their own biases and changing their behaviors and their practices. And I think... Um, on the other side too, like how Rio was saying, many of the participants developing this uh, training program uh, came to realize throughout the work that they are valuable as people. And so I just, I can't think of another program or process where um, it's just massively beneficial to the creators and to the consumers of the product. I'm just, I, I can't, I couldn't be more excited about this program. It's really amazing. And, and um, yes, me and Erica helped a little bit, but Rhea, just nine, 90, 95% of it was, um, you know, Rhea and, and her team at USU and, and everybody else. But it's just, it's going to be such a transformative uh, program. I'm so excited about it. Aw, shucks. <laughs> And we have like in the works, we we're constantly adding stuff to our website. Um, it's already massive. It'll take you at least five hours to go through and read like all the stuff that we have, if not more. And um, we're adding stuff to it weekly. Erica has a new series that she's working on about um, it's going to be kind of like infographics and posters about urine drug screening and um, the what they tell you, what they don't, how they work. Um, and what people, both clinicians and people whose urine is being tested, what people need to know about that. And so that's coming up. We're going to be adding um, a how to um, Finnegan scoring, which is uh, Finnegan scoring is the way that we assess babies with neonatal um, opioid withdrawal. And it's, it's often closely guarded. Many, many most parents and families don't know how it works. And I'm going to be totally honest. Many nurses have never seen a how-to for this. And they're the people that are, you know, assessing babies and assigning scores. So we're going to add that. We have lots and lots of other stuff in the works. We're doing, um, we're working on trainings for various organizations. Um, we offer all kinds of, um, of trainings for groups or, um, and we also have tons of pre-recorded trainings and presentations on our YouTube channel. So um, that's, uh, you can search in YouTube Academy of Perinatal Harm Reduction. And again, our website is perinatalharmreduction.org. And the reason it's so beautiful is because of Erica's amazing uh, design capabilities. So I wanna shout out to her and thank her for creating our gorgeous website. <laughs> yeah, we are. Our our next we're we're right now we're getting ready to do a training for um, public health solutions out of New York. Um, we're doing um, a bias training with them, and um, getting ready to submit an abstract for um, a conference here in Oregon. So yeah, I mean we're just out there trying to educate the people and uh, change hearts and minds, y'all. <laughs> Preaching the gospel of harm reduction and. Uh trying to take care of each other while we do it mm-hmm. and missing everyone terribly the worst it's the worst
I can't wait to I can't wait to get free stuff and bad coffee and like and hug people. I'm gonna be yeah. rubbing my face all over people as soon as we can, and it's gonna be weird. Fair <laughs> warning. Prepare. Well, I'm so happy to support and promote the work that you all are doing. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll have a link to the website perinatalharmreduction.org in case people haven't heard that enough in the show notes. You can just click it. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having thanks, us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Troy. Thank awesome. you, Narcotica. We love your podcast. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, so thanks so much for helping us out. It helps keep us ad-free. We don't want to become some podcast that's starting to sell you some bullshit, but... No. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast. It advocates for social justice and abolishing the drug war. And then rate us wherever you get your podcast so others can find us. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by Done With Fish. Those fish just did them wrong. No more fish. Done with fish. You can also follow Narcotica on Twitter, Facebook. I guess we have an Instagram account now. YouTube. Uh, these are the best ways to contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or want to tell us nice things about drugs. That's everything. Have a good week. I'm Trifera, and you're listening to Narcotica. We have a great episode for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kind of tired. Cut that out, please.